Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. This simple but yet powerful reenactment is something that really can't even be brought to life in our day. But what we will see by the end of today, hopefully, as we go into the Word of God is is to see that not only did this happen in real life as we jump into Matthew 21, but also what Jesus was overturning was something more powerful than really what even in that little moment that they could even grasp. And yet what he was overturning was not just the fact that they were making his house that was supposed to be a house of prayer into a den of robbers, but what they were doing is they were adding corruption into things that were spiritual and they were to be holy. You see, Jesus has a long history of of making things right as he's elevating children in a culture that that basically eliminated the, the importance of children. Jesus removed gender barriers. Jesus destroyed ethnic barriers. Jesus obliterated racial barriers. And Jesus eviscerated religious barriers. And there's something happening in this passage that speaks into all of these things except of how he elevated children. The word of God that was just reenacted in front of you, we'll jump into, is in Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus says he's entering into the sacred and holy place. He's coming in with a plan. He's coming in with, with a spiritual force. He's coming in because he has seen something and he is so disturbed by, by what he has seen and the corruption that is there. Yet you may ask a question You say, well, is it even right that Jesus would overturn the money changers' tables? Is it even right that Jesus would go in and make a spectacle amongst thousands of people? At the time of Passover and the the, the numbers around that area would swell by the tens or hundreds of thousands. Who knows how many eyes were were there and locked into what Jesus was doing. And this was the, the epicenter of the place of worship during the time of Passover. Is it even right that Jesus would do this? And I would contend to you, yes, absolutely. Because Jesus knew something and he spoke into, and spoke into with such power and veracity as he's overturning the tables. And what he's saying is this. We don't need one more obstacle that keeps people from God. We don't need one more obstacle that keeps people from God. You may say, well, pastor, that's really not enough. Well, I understand it may not be enough. I want you to know that the word of God is true in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. And it says this, in your anger, do not sin, but let, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. So is it okay to be angry? Yes or no, church? Yes, it is. But we have to be angry about the right things and we need to respond in the right way. That's a good place for an amen, whether you're in the room or you're at home. Because we all can be angry over the wrong things, right? I just said wrong and right at the same time. I know. I I, I kind of tripped myself up. We all can be angry 
and to exert that anger in the wrong way. And yet Jesus was completely right when he did this, and we're going to see this at the end of this passage. We have some work to do to get there. But I want you to know this, that the bottom line for this passage, whether you're, you're in the room or you're at home, Jesus turned over tables of injustice with righteous anger. Jesus turned over tables of injustice with righteous anger. Because the path to God doesn't need one more obstacle. Here's the thing about obstacles. I learned this the hard way. I ran a, an obstacle race several years ago. It was a seven-mile race. I had trained for it. And by obstacles, it, was, it meant that you ran the seven miles, but then they threw random things in the middle of it. You had to jump over fire. You had to swim under ice. You had to climb over like this eight-foot wall. And you're looking at me like, why did you volunteer to do this? I not only volunteered, I paid to do this. So it's different. <laughs> and so I was set for all of those things. There was this big... Uh, monk, uh, it was like monkey bars, but it was called sawtooth, and it was, I trained, and I did a lot of pull-ups t- preparing for this long thing called sawtooth to be able to climb up and over. It looked like a military obstacle course, and I planned for all those things, but what I wasn't planning for was the very first obstacle on the course. We had ran probably half a mile or maybe a mile or so, got to the first obstacle, and it looked really easy. It looked really, really easy. I'm there with a group of guys that I was running with, and people just kind of stood there, and they're like, what do we do? I'm like, well, it's an obstacle course race. You jump over the obstacle. It's not that hard. So me, being the shortest of everybody on our team, I thought, well, this is no big deal. There's just a, it looks like a telephone pole uh, horizontally, and then uh, basically to cut down telephone pole uh, vertically to hold it up. And it's, I think they called it the steeplechase. You had to jump over this telephone pole of things, and it's literally not that high. And I was like, everybody else is standing there scratching their head, like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I'm like, you jump over this crazy thing. So I thought I would lead the way. I, I underestimated a couple things. I underestimated the fact that I really don't have that much of a jumping ability, and I underestimated how tall the thing was, And I also underestimated how hard it would hurt when I hit the ground because I didn't clear the obstacle. So I I went to jump over it, and as I jumped over it, I just kind of straddled it in the middle. And then gravity didn't take me in the right way. It actually took me the wrong way, and it slung me over. And then I'm hanging like a four-year-old on the bottom of the thing. And then I just get tired and let go, and then right down flat on my back. Everybody had a good laugh at my expense. But then I did what, what men do. I cried. No, I didn't. I didn't do that. I did not do that. I did not. I did what, what men do, and I was like, oh, I'm going to show this obstacle. And I went back a little bit further, and I jumped, and I cleared it. And we still had a good laugh at my expense. So that's the thing about obstacles. Sometimes we just underestimate the obstacles that are in front of us. Honestly, sometimes we underestimate even the obstacle that it is for someone to even step into a church. Sometimes we underestimate the obstacle that it is just to come into a church. Somebody who says maybe they are a Christian and they're just away from God for a season or they're just not Christians at all and yet they want to know more about God. They want to know more about Jesus or be a part of a local church. We underestimate the obstacles that exist that even hinder people from coming inside these doors. I'm so thankful that we have such a loving church that greets every single person on the way in to acknowledge them, to say, I'm glad you're here. And you know what? We mean it. I praise God that we're that kind of church, that we're that kind of congregation. 
But also, one of the things that I, I think we, when we talk about obstacles, it's not all obstacles are the same. Sometimes we have obstacles that are, that are in our path, and we think, well, that's no big deal. That's just kind of like an obstacle to entry. It's like that's just, that's just no big deal at all. And sometimes I think what we do is we underestimate uh, the, the, the size of that obstacle by saying, you know what, they're all the same. Well, it's just easy to read the Bible because it's, it's what we think is what's well, just as challenging for me to read the Bible as for you to read the Bible. It's just as challenging for you to come to church as it is for me to come to church, and just simply not true. What we're going to see is something even more profound than that in this passage. As we look into Matthew 21, starting in verse 12, and we dig into this passage, I want us to see that I've, I've out, I have outlined this in four main points. Not that all these points are wow points, but because there's so much going on in the passage that I want us to have these four rallying points that we can follow along to see the weight of this moment. Verse 12, Matthew 21 says this, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you hear what these children are saying? They asked, yes. Have you never read? This is Jesus' words. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them and he went on to the city, to Bethany, where he spent the night. And next week, we're going to see what happened next. Sequentially, what happened next in and around Bethany. Back to verse 12, though. First thing we're going to see in this passage, and for us to really understand the weight of this moment, I want you to know that the temple was made for God. If you're filling in blanks, this would be the first thing you'd fill in. The, The temple was made for God. Just gather this, if you will. There are thousands of people descending upon Jerusalem in the time of Passover. The city would be small in in size, large for back then, but small as compared to what you would see today and small as to what you would see in size amount of people there because of Passover, the significant Jewish holiday. People would make pilgrimage to come in there. And some of them would, they'd bring... Their whole family, some of them would bring their sacrifices, and they would be on long journeys. So it would, like, just, I think the, the smell would precede the people, truthfully. I mean, a case of Axe body spray could not cover the smell what was going on there. A lot of middle school boys have tried, but it just doesn't work, trust me. Like for us to really sense what's going on there, it would have just been, it would have smelled the numbers. It would have been loud. The crowd just going into this place, all the hustle and bustle and all the chaos. And what would normally be a sleepy town now is just overflowing with people. But why? Well, they're going into the temple because the temple was made for God. Before we start talking about the temple, I have to explain to you the pathway to get to the temple and the importance of the temple. So if you indulge me over this first point, we're going to spend some time, and I'm just going to make reference to other passages from the Old Testament so you see what's going on here. 
The Israelites were once slaves in Egypt, and after a 400-year bout of oppression and slavery, God rose up a leader by the name of Moses. And Moses would bring the message of God out of the mouth of God to the people of God, and eventually that message would descend down, and then the people were told that they, that they were going to leave, that they were no longer going to be in a bit of slavery in Egypt and no, no longer making bricks for Pharaoh, but instead that God would deliver them. So God made an exodus. Exodus means mass departure. They made an exodus out of Egypt, and they spent a lot of time in the desert. This is about 1442 B.C., And while they were in the middle of the desert, God had told them that they were to build a tabernacle. The tabernacle was a a tent, essentially, or a portable or temporary shrine used for worship before the temple temple itself was built. And most importantly, it was a temporary dwelling place of God amongst His people. The temple wasn't just built by two guys scratching their head watching a YouTube video. Wondering, I don't know, what do you think we should do? I don't know, what do you think we should do? It was built by reliable and skilled craftsmen. Numbers 9, 15 through 18 says this. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at His command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. So God was dwelling over the tabernacle, and that was... His way of letting them know whether they're supposed to stay or they're supposed to go. Over this tabernacle, which is a temporary dwelling place before the temple was built. But we're getting there. Exodus 30 verse 6 says this. Place the incense altar just outside the inner curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant. In front of the Ark's cover, the place of atonement that covers the tablets. That's the Ten Commandments. Inscribed with the terms of the covenant. I will meet you there, God says. And this is where God would meet his people. Heaven was touching to earth in this portable tent until the time of King David. Approximately 400 years later, and about about the year, estimated the year, 1000 B.C. David has moved of heart. You can read about this yourself in 2 Samuel 7 too. But he's moved in his heart because he had this, this palace built for himself. And he says, well, I have a palace to live in, but yet... But yet, there's, why, why is it that the presence of God is still like living in a tent? And he just had this cognitive dissonance. He just didn't understand. He's like, why am I living like a king? And yet, God, you are worthy of all glory and all praise. And you are the majestic one. Why is it your presence is in this, this shabby tent that by now is hundreds of years old? And yet, although David was moved of heart that he would be the one to build a temple... 
God told David this in 1 Chronicles 28.3. He says, you must not build a temple to honor my name, for you are a warrior and must shed much blood. In other words, you're a warrior. You're not going to be the one who builds the temple. The good news is David's son would build the temple. And yet the temple was not built for man. It was built for God. We get a, a, just a glimpse of the importance of the, the temple itself by just listening into Solomon's prayer. 1 Kings 8, 28 through 30, as he's dedicating the temple itself, he says, Nevertheless, listen to my prayer and my plea, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is making to you today. May you watch over this temple night and day, this place where you have said, My name will be there. May you always hear the prayers I make toward this place. May you hear the humble and earnest requests from me and your people, Israel, when, when we pray toward this place. Yes, hear us from heaven where we live, and you will forgive. Here's God's reply. 1 Kings 9.3 I have heard your prayer and your petition. I have set this temple apart to be holy. This place you have built where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it, for you are dear to my heart. So now we catch a glimpse of how important this temple is. This holy and set-apart place that people are descending upon that was built for God, not for man. And yet, man's interaction here was this. Man, or people gave sacrifices to God in that temple. So this is the people aspect of it. Solomon builds the temple, and it's a beautiful temple, and, and the fulfillment of that, and people in this time of celebration, he dedicates the temple. God reiterates to him that blessing upon the temple and the worship that would be gathered there, and yet what also would be happening there is what would make Jesus have righteous anger. Because people gave sacrifices to God in the temple. Here's just kind of a crude uh, drawing, if you will, of Solomon's temple. I look for so many different examples, and I'm not artistic, so I couldn't make this for you. So I had to look this up online. But uh, I had gone through a long search trying to find the best thing. And this is actually the best thing that I've seen to show you what this would have looked like. So if you, if you notice at the bottom of the screen, it says the court of the women. Just outside, if you were to go below the screen, on the outside of the perimeter walls would have been the court of the Gentiles. In other words, they would have been outside of this compound. That unless you were Jewish, you could not even enter into this compound at all. So this is the distance that if you're not Jewish, that you had to stay away. Also, you see at the bottom of the screen, it says court of the women. So... Israelite women, you cannot go any further than this. That is the court. That's the, that's the furthest point you could get nearest to the most holy place in the middle. And then there's the, the court of the Israelites. Now, that's really misleading because it's not just the court of the Israelites. It's the court of the Israelite men. And then inside that perimeter, then priest would be. And then one time a year, at the time of Yom, Yom Kippur, is what we still celebrated today, Yom Kippur, they would go into the temple one time a year, and the most high priest, or the, or the high priest, would go in and he would offer a sacrifice one time a year. But you see, all of these, these things were 
barriers to the nearness of God. It's kind of like when you go to a concert. Who's ever been to a concert? Pretty much everybody, probably. You go to a concert and, and you know, you go to a concert and maybe you have a backstage pass. You get to go backstage. Maybe you have a VIP ticket where you get a meal and go backstage. Or maybe you just have a front row seat. Or maybe you just have general admission. Or maybe you were late to get your ticket and you're in the back of the room. Or maybe if they allow it, you have standing room only. So imagine people partitioned farther and farther and farther and farther away. All the the way to the point of standing room only where there's people, only certain people given access to God that's based upon their gender and ethnicity. So I'll say it in a different way. Say, for instance, you were a family and now you were going to, to Jerusalem and you wanted to go there to, during the time of Passover and you're observing the, the Jewish practices. So you're going there as a family and maybe you've got some animals and you've got your kids and now you're outside the, the court of the Gentiles and now there's all of these people just milling around. The mental picture that I could see was these people, sometimes you go to an amusement park and you see their kids, like, you, you see them tethered at the wrist with, like, a little clicker. The same thing we use for, what? What? Dogs. It's the same thing, right? And you see, you go to, like, it used to be really popular. You see kids on a clicker, and it's like you see a mass of people. You want to keep your kids close. You're like, yep, only let them have so much uh, distance away from you. So it's, it, imagine that kind of space and out in the courtyard, there's that amount of people, but also all the animals. So then my, my mind went to, it's like, okay, well, I've got, I've got two kids on this clicker, and then I've got two animals on a clicker, and they're going back and forth. And if you ever tried to walk a dog in public, you know what that's like. I was never good at it. We tried, and then I have a fenced-in yard, and I just told Bella, our, our dog we had, I said, go run, go do your thing, because neither one of us is really good at this. But there's all of this hustle and bustle that's going on there. And now we're going to see something else as we do a deep dive. Verse 12 says this, Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, he enters the temple area and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the the benches of those selling doves. I want you to know this. The third thing that we would gather from this is the money changers were convenient scammers. The people who would be there selling doves primarily for people who wouldn't be able to bring animals in because they're, they're going such a long distance, people who couldn't bring animals in to offer them as a sacrifice to God. Instead, what they would do is they would go up outside of the, the temple area, outside of the court of the Gentiles, and they would, be, they would be set up there like what was shown to you. They would have tables, and they would have this buying and selling going on outside of the temple area. But they were scamming people. As a matter of fact, it's believed that, this, that what would happen is the people who were there outside of the court of the Gentiles offering sacrifices, 
they actually had to go in and they would actually get almost like a contract or a deed or an opportunity to go in there. So there, there could have been a bidding war to see who would be able to get inside there because they knew that it was going to be a lucrative business. A way that, that it, this would relate to us is at our county fair or the, the, you know, the city fairs, the festivals that we have around our area, people have to go into whoever's putting on the, the festival fair or picnic, they, would, they have to go in and they, they have to basically put a bid and they offer their services to the city or county and then the city or county then says, yes, you can come in. But it's a, it's a bidding war. And what's happening in this passage is people are negotiating and they're competing for these concession stand places within the temple. And they knew that they could make a fortune in a week's time. So what we see is now at the time of Passover, there are three different ways that they could gouge people as they're coming in. It's estimated that they would pay 10 times that if somebody were to buy a dove, which was what the poorest of poor could afford, if somebody were going to buy a dove, that they would, they would charge them 10 times the amount right then, just a matter of convenience, that they would charge them 10 times the amount for that dove as they would come up to this kind of concession stand. In addition to that, they would have to pay a temple maintenance tax that everybody had to pay whenever they went up to, to the stand the money changers' tables. But then the last thing, certainly not the least, is, is then they would, they would have their foreign currency, but there was only a certain, a certain type of currency that would be allowed in that time. So if you lived in a far-off country or in a land that had different currency, you had to exchange your currency to then be able to buy the dove. That is estimated that they were gouging people and charged them over 25% more than what they should have. And if you've ever gone to a foreign country, you know that this still happens. Not if you go to a bank, but if you go to deep in the village, they, they love to exchange that currency and they're hoping that you don't know the value of that currency. So they overcharge you. That's the same things that are happening here. This is why Jesus had to overturn the table. Because the temple courts were more like a cattle auction or a concert than a place of worship. And nobody likes to be overcharged, do they? And yet, this is not just an, as an overcharge. You know, like you go to Six Flags and, and you go in and then it's scorching hot day in the middle of July. You know, where the only thing in shorter supply than shade is a water fountain. You know what I mean? So you're like, you go in and you buy one drink and there's six of you in the, in the like there's six of you and you're like, we're just going to slurp out of the same drink. We're all, I, I'm not paying for six drinks. I don't care. I don't care how thirsty you are. <laughs> pass it on. You pass it on down. <laughs> who grew up like that? I just want to see who grew up like that. <laughs> who still thinks that's gross? Thank you. Me too. But we had to do it. Nobody likes to, to overpay, but this was even more so because these are spiritual obstacles to people going there to worship God. This infuriated Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 13. 
Same thing that Jake said during our reenactment. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. This, of course, is connecting two different verses from the Old Testament. My house will be called a house of prayer is, is taken from Isaiah 56, 7. And then, but you're making a den of robbers is taken from Jeremiah 7, 11. This bothered Jesus because the marginalized, the poor, the blind, and the lame were kept from worshiping God. Because people don't need one more obstacle to worship God. So I could summarize everything in telling you this, that Jesus was overturning a corrupt system. The whole thing was rigged. It was a setup. People couldn't do anything about it. The religious leaders gave a pass. The people managing the, the temple area, they gave a pass. They were, they were bargaining, going back and forth, so they knew exactly what was happening, and they didn't do anything. The only person who could corrupt or who could correct this corruption was Jesus, and that's exactly what he did when he turned over the money changers' tables. He was overturning a corrupt system. Jesus is the Lamb of God, but he is also the Lion of the triumph of Judah. Some in the church have a very passive or soft view when it comes to God, and they think that, that God was just so meek and mild that he just walked around, and then he just sat with children, and he was just, he was just like a helpless shepherd. He was not helpless at any point. He was in control of every situation and every room that he stepped into. Because Jesus Christ is and was powerful, and he's righteous. He is the Holy One. He is the Messiah. He, was the, he is and was the anointed one. Notice, if you will, this is just a few days before his death on the cross. And he knew that too. You see, when we start talking about turning over tables and that kind of, that, that, that sort of expression of anger, it's a dangerous thing because some of us in the house, all we do is turn over tables. As a matter of fact, that's, that's the only emotion that maybe some of you even show consistently. And that's just what you do. And you just go into the room, and that's the reason why your kids are scared. And that's the reason why your wife doesn't trust you anymore. And that's the reason why your husband doesn't listen to you anymore. So I, I say with a, a level of sensitivity, when Jesus is overturning the tables, this is not some explosive bout of anger that may be what we see in our life because the Spirit of God overturns that too. There's three different main types of anger. If you're filling in blanks, the first thing that we would see, you could see is this, is rage, is rage. Ephesians 4, 26 says this. And your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. 
If you continue on in verse 31, Ephesians 4, it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, that explosive anger, the brawling and slander along with every form of malice. But flip the script on that. The next verse says, being kind and compassionate and forgiving just as Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. So the first type of anger is rage. The second is repressed. Repressed. That's when it's not expressed in a healthy way. You don't talk about your emotions. You don't flesh them out with a counselor. You don't talk to your pastor. You don't go to your life group. You don't talk to your husband and wife. You don't talk to a trusted believer. Instead, it's just repressed, and you just push it down and push it down and push it down. And although you feel in a certain way, you feel, 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 and then all of a sudden it comes out like a volcano. To where what has been repressed over a long amount of time is just everywhere. And that too scares people and it causes people not to be able to trust you. Because you've just shown to be untrustworthy. Because we don't get around explosive people like that, do we? We tend to hide from explosive people like that. The third type of anger is the type of anger that Jesus had. It's righteous anger. And that's being angry about the things that we should be angry about. Jesus didn't retaliate against those who mistreated him. We're going to see this on Good Friday. We're going to see this if you come to the services, and I would love for you to come to the Good Friday service and then Easter Sunday and, and bring, bring friends with you. That's why we passed all those cards out. And they've been there for the last couple of weeks. Jesus didn't retaliate against those who mistreated him. At no time did he, did he go back and forth with them in some childish way. Instead, when they were hurling insults at him, he did not retaliate with words or actions against them. He went along with it because that was the only way that he could overturn the power of sin. The corruption that, that's in our lives, he, that was the only way that people could be made right with God. That even... When Jesus died, that the veil was torn, the separation between God and man was no longer. The point of the temple was no longer. Now, Jesus is that mediator between us and God. Jesus is the, the one and only mediator between us and God. There's no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. And Jesus reiterates this again in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the blessed seal after of, of repenting of our sins and confessing of our sins isn't the gathering of more information or the setting apart of our, of our sins in our own way. Instead, it's by the Spirit of God. And it's only by the Spirit of God that then can we be free from the power of sin. This is not a matter of higher learning. This is not a matter of, well, if I clean myself up right, and if I get myself right, then Jesus will love me more. Jesus died to give you more. Because those two are corrupted thoughts. Those two are corrupted beliefs. 
there were some prevalent belief systems that were happening around that time. And, and maybe I'll preach through at some point the book of Colossians, but I want you to know there was all sorts of corruption in that time and in the time of the Apostle Paul. There was a thing called asceticism that people believed that if, if we just, if we conditioned ourselves to live a certain way, then God would love us more. If we were to make ourselves holy, then God would love us more. And that was a corrupted thought. Jesus overturned that corruption. There was also a prevalent theme or belief around that time. It was mysticism. It was skewed and it was a dabbling of spirituality that's not that different than what we see in our day and age today. This dabbling in mysticism that's not the gospel message. It's not true Christianity. Because it's either Jesus being the source of our salvation or Jesus plus anything else which then distorts the message of Christianity. And the other thing that, that, again, if I were to go into Colossians, I could show you this also. Not only was it asceticism, if I live a certain way and if I, if I live holy, then God's going to love me more. Or second, this, this mystic thought that was vaguely spiritual. And the last one was Gnosticism, this, this thought in Gnosticism, that if I can gain this higher level of learning, then I can ascend mentally. And if I ascend mentally, then I can be at the same place of God. And that is all rubbish and foolishness. None of that is true. Jesus died to overturn all of those things. Jesus is God. Right. Correct. He did. He did. And he was talked about in Genesis 3.15 in the Proto-Evangelium that said, and it was just a hint of what the gospel would be coming, Jesus Christ is the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. Amen. Amen. Jesus was angry when other people were mistreated and his father was dishonored. Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her, shepherd, before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. That is the word of God. That is Isaiah 53, 7. If you're filling in blanks, again, Jesus flipped tables and chairs, but not the people. But not the people. Jesus didn't come to cancel people. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself, he came to cancel sin, not the sinners. Jesus came to give hope to those who are hopeless, to add clarity to those who are confused, to give peace to those who are living with hostility. And I praise God that Jesus didn't cancel me whenever I was dead in my sins. I praise God that he didn't cancel me when I was a kid running these streets and I was living of the world. I praise God that even, even when I was a Christian and I was backslid in my time, that he didn't cancel me and he didn't just say, well, I had a great future for you and I had a hope for you, but now it's no longer you've given that up. Because not only did Jesus die to overturn the corruption 
in my heart, but he also gave me the promised Holy Spirit to live out the truth that he provides. And it's the Holy Spirit that is the constant reminder that I'm saved. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of our charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. I think another takeaway would be this. The things that breaks God's heart should break ours. The things that breaks God's heart should break ours. And Jesus was so moved, and he is still so moved, to turn over corruption, to remove any unnecessary obstacle that keeps people from worshiping God. Let us be that kind of church. Let us be that kind of people. I invite you to stand. Lord Jesus, we praise you because you are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. All knowing comes from you. All loving comes from you. All true hope comes from you. True peace comes from you. Lord Jesus, if there's corruption in somebody's heart today, God, we ask just a fresh anointing of the Spirit. Descend upon that person. Remind them, God, that they're a sinner, that they're in need of a Savior. Spirit of God, open their heart to receiving the gospel today. Not as just some intellectual pursuit, but as a spiritual pursuit. This speaks into every aspect of life. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.